Before I get into anything, including the introduction, I'd like to thank the committee, because I get wound up and I usually forget, for inviting me here today and having been so gracious and hospitable to all the members of my group that came with me. It's been a pleasure to visit Myrtle Beach, and I assure you, I will be back, maybe not next year, because that's Minneapolis, but we'll be back the next time with a busload, and we'll have just as much fun then as we had today. It was beautiful. I thank you very much, all you people, and of course, the committee who invited us here. Thank you. My name is Stan B., and I'm an alcoholic, and uh, you already know my group members, and they are good people. And they do give advice once in a while. And they gave me some advice today. They said, Stan, the hotel is beautiful. The rooms are gorgeous. The food and the scenery out there is great. And the speakers up until now were terrific. Don't ruin it. The speaker before me talked about nervous. Yeah, I'm nervous. I'm very nervous. And I remember when I started speaking at little anniversaries in New Jersey, my sponsor would say to me, Stan, are you nervous? And I say, yeah, I'm nervous. He said, that's good, because only the ego people are not nervous. So I say, I'm, not, I'm nervous no matter what, whether I am or not. <laughs> I came into this program a young man, and but for the grace of God, I stayed to get old in AA. I'm at this point where I'm losing my eyesight a little bit. My hearing's starting to go. My sense of direction is going away somewhere. Thank God I still got my driver's license. <laughs> the lady the other day spoke about Orifix. I knew a gentleman that mixed up his Orifix with Preparation H. You know that Preparation H stuff? You know what that's for, don't you? Well, he got it mixed up. His teeth are all right, but now he can't pull his drawers off. I was just talking to Jay about you golfers out here, and I heard some tall stories. And I thought honesty was part of the program, folks. And I'll tell you a little story about a, a Jewish rabbi, well, Jewish, any other rabbi, a rabbi coming driving down past one of these golf courses, and he came by this golf course, and he looked around, and it's 5.30 in the morning, he said to himself, my gosh, nobody out there. I got my clubs in my car, I'm going to go out there and hit a few. But then he thought, he said, I can't do that. I'm on my way to the temple. It's the high holy days. Well, he fought with himself a bit, and then he went out there, and he started hitting, ready to get tee off. And Moses and St. Peter up there arguing. St. Peter saying, look at this, Moses, one of your chosen men, going to play golf on the high holy days. Moses says, don't worry, Pete. I'll take care of everything. And Rabbi got up there, and he teed off. My God, hole in one. St. Peter ran to him says, Moses, I thought you said I was going, you were going to take care of him. He said, I did. Who's he going to tell? <laughs> now we're in a good mood, and I believe in good moods, and I believe in joy and happiness. I believe that I came in here to live. I didn't come in here to die, folks. I died too many times out there. I came in a young man, and right from the beginning I knew there was a little different difference between me and the other fella that crashed the weddings when we were 12 and 13 years old. 
When the other fellas came, they came to dance and did the polka and did the little few dances. We used to run to the tables and snitch the wine and beer that was left over. And many a nights we got a good fit. And I remember getting drunk one night there, 11, 12 years old. And I remember coming to a building and I laid, put my head down and somebody scared me and I hit the wall with my head and I still got a knot back there today. And I was sick and I came home. And mom didn't know what was wrong with me and she never dreamt that I was drinking. And she did this to me and she did that to me. She gave me all the Polish remedies. And I swore, folks, Monday, I'll never drink again. Tuesday, how can those people drink? Like, it tastes terrible. And Friday, the same man that asked me to go to the wedding the last time said, you know, Stan, we're going again on Saturday. I said, what time are you leaving? <laughs> you see, there was something there. There was something there already. I got myself a job in a liquor distributing place. Where else? Huh? And I remember being the best garbage man they ever had. And everybody wondered why Stan wants to take the garbage out. But since he wants to, let him do it. Man, I'd go downstairs and I'd get myself a bottle of a wine or whatever. I'd wrap that up and put the, take the garbage out and put it in the incinerator. Then I'd get my friend and we'd sit on top of the hill and pray. Lord, don't let that man come with the matches. And you know, there was a few nights he came and put that incinerator on. And you know that pop that brings tears to your eyes, folks. <laughs> Makes no difference how old you are. It brings tears to your eyes. I was an athlete in high school. I played a lot of ball. I had a good high school uh, education. Uh, I got out of high school. I joined the Marine Corps. And I joined the Marine Corps. We sat in a gin mill one night. Gin mill, that happens to be a tavern for you. some of you young people that know what that is. And we sat in this gin mill and we decided to join the service. And it was a Korean War broke out and we didn't want to join the, the Army because the Army drank too much. And we didn't want to join the Navy because they were out for three months at a time and then they came back and that's all they drank, so we joined the Marine Corps. And I spent more time in the Navy, I think, than I did with the Marines. I was a good Marine. I liked the Marine Corps. I didn't get in too much trouble. I got into situations. I stole a train in Japan. We, we had to get back to the ship and this Irishman... He says to me, he says, Stan, he says, you start. We were watching how they were trying to get that thing going. He says, you start that thing and I'll stop it. And I said, okay. So I got it started. We were going. And then I, we went by the ship. And he said, there's the ship. I said, well, stop the darn thing. He couldn't stop it. And since that day, I don't trust Irishmen or guys that don't wear socks. <laughs> that man used to fall off for inspection with no socks on. I came back home, I was discharged, I came back, I was married while I was in the service. Had two beautiful daughters. I'm sitting on top of the world, folks, at age 24. I had a beautiful job for Johnson & Johnson, the Band-Aid people. I was the shop steward there, had seven years seniority by then. I, I had a, a great thing going there. Anything, I played basketball for the company, I played a little by bowl for the company, softball, basketball. I used to take off from work, punch my card, play ball, and then come back and punch back in again. What a deal. I bought myself a, a nice little house. I furnished it completely. I put a brand new Chrysler in the driveway. And at age 24, I was sitting on top of the world. And at age 28, I crawled into this program on both hands and both knees. And I begged people. And when I came to this program, I knew there was something wrong. And I thanked God that that's all there was wrong with me. Because what happened to me in those four short years don't happen to people in 30 years. And when I came in, I heard people talk about this and about... I identified immediately. No matter what you said, I identified. Yes, I did it. You talked about jails. I was there. 
You talked about nut houses, I was there. You name it, I did it. I knocked to get into a nut house. And they wouldn't let me in. And I said to him, you got to let me in. And she said, how come? I said, because my brother-in-law just dropped me off and he ain't coming back. i got to get in here. And I was drunker than a skunk and she was a, a Russian, Russian doctor. And she was talking half Russian, half Polish, and I understood. I understood one part. I understood when she said, let this bum sign in, but don't let him sign out. And they had two floors at that time in Marlboro. They had nuts and nutsier. I don't know why they call them like that, but I went straight up to nutsier. Today there's a rehab there and they have a big, big sign out there. It says, New Hope. When I went there, baby, no hope. Forget it. You were staying. And they took me upstairs and, you know, I started to sober up the next day. And the other guys didn't. <laughs> there were some sick people in that place. And the fellow started to jump. Jump, jump. And he's jumping for a half a day. And I, I went to one guy and said, what's the guy doing? He's just jumping over puddles. I said, I don't see any puddles. Oh, that's because you're new. <laughs> oh, ho, ho, that's because you're new. He said, yeah. He said, you wait. He says, in two weeks, you'll see a waterfall in that corner. Fill up this whole place with water. We used to get those paper slippers, and you know, the guy wanted to save his paper slippers. They gave me a job because they felt I needed some action. And they put me in a butcher shop. I went in this butcher shop, and I looked around, and I said, ma'am, who are inmates and who ain't? And she said, they're all inmates. And I said, yeah, they all got cleavers. I'm out of here, man. I'm getting out of here. And I went back, and they took me, and they, they posted me in front of this board, like seven men and women, and they stood there, and they asked me questions before they let me out. And they said to me, did you learn anything while you were here? I said, certainly. I learned not to come back here. That's what I learned. You see, folks, nobody, nobody mentioned a thing about alcohol. Nobody said, are you an alcoholic? Do you have a problem with drinking? Alcoholism was not a disease at that time. It was a disgrace. And if you had someone in your family that maybe even attended some of those meetings, call me a drunk. Call me a bum. But God, don't forget, don't ever call me an alcoholic. That was a disgrace. And they let me out the door. And they said to me as I left, they said, you keep doing what you are and you'll be back here. And I said, not me. But you know something else? They never told me what I was doing. They never told me what I was doing wrong. But they were right. Because almost to the day, a year later, they brought me in with one of those jackets with no sleeves and threw me into a padded cell. And I remember like it was yesterday, I ran up the walls and I knew I couldn't run up the walls. I remember falling and I remember bleeding and tearing my clothes off. And I remember the big burly guys coming in with needles and stabbing me. Anywhere they can get me. And I got one back here I still feel today. That was their job. They took me out of there and brought me in front of those same seven people. Asked me the same questions. Nobody said anything about alcohol. And I went out and got drunk before I got home. Somebody suggested to my dad that I should go. Something happened to Stashu Stanley in, in Korea. He wasn't like that when he went to the service. The Marine Corps did it to him. So they got me a shrink. A shrink that needed a shrink. This guy was a pip. <laughs> he was a beauty. He decided to give me shock treatment. So he'd take me in. And he'd zip me. He'd zip me like this 16 times. Nothing happened. I got thirsty. 
For $35 a whack, I get thirsty by myself. I don't need him to get me thirsty. And I said, what are you trying to do to me? He said, I'm trying to make you forget everything that ever made you drink, and then some. That's what bothered me. The then some. Because I had bottles hidden in the cellar. I had them in the backyard. I had, I had roses in November one day. And my neighbor came to me and he says, how come you got roses? I said, I got antifreeze under there. He said, what do you mean? And I pulled the rose up and there was a little pint bottle down there just in case things got rough, you know? Couldn't believe it. I had automobiles. I think I had nine or eleven of these cars. And the same guy got them all. And he used to say to me, after the first three, he used to, I used to call up and say, Harry, this is Stan. Where is it? Then ask what happened. Did you get hurt? Anything? Where is it? And he'd pick it up. Same guy. I hit a guy on a ferry boat. Guy was standing still. I don't know where I was going, but I got out of the car and asked him where he was going. <laughs> I drove through a war in the dry cleaning shop in Staten Island, New York. And I remembered a little Jewish tailor sitting there. Young man, would you please move that thing out of here so I can open for business? Man, you already open for business, you know. Real wise guy. Right here in Swansburg, North Carolina, I hit a pig. Big 400 pounds south. I don't know where he came from, but I hit her. And then after I hit her, I wondered because four little piglets were flying around. I didn't know whether I had him when I, when, when I hit her or she had him, you know, after I hit her, whichever it was. But the big old North Carolina state trooper came and says, you can have that pig if you want. I said, what do you mean? He said, I think there was a fencing law in North Carolina. If a pig breaks out, it's your responsibility. He didn't want nothing. I was in the Marine Corps. I had, I, there was with a pig that wasn't mine, and I didn't want it. I was driving a car that wasn't mine, and I was with a woman that wasn't mine, and I had all kinds of trouble. My whole time, I hit a train. One o'clock in the morning, I hit a train. They took me to court, and they took me to a Polish judge. We Polish, we got Polish judges, you know. We got, we got a Polish pope, too. Man, that saved us from a lot of jokes, I'll tell you that. I went to see this Polish judge, and he knew me. I was a knee-high to a grasshopper, and he said, Stasha, you should get a lawyer. Now, what do I need a lawyer? I know what happened. I'll tell you, it's beer money going down the drain. He postponed it three times, and the railroad brought three lawyers. And I remember the last time already, he said, well, he says, maybe it was foggy. And I said, no, Your Honor, the moon was out. It was a nice night, you know. <laughs> Not realizing the man was trying to, maybe your brakes failed. No, just past inspection. Had a great, no, no. Finally, he said to me, he says, maybe you didn't see the train. The two rollers jumped up and says, Your Honor, didn't see the train. He hit the 44th car. What do you mean he didn't see the train? <laughs> 44 cars went by. I lost that little job at J&J. The man called me up and he said, Stan, he said, you've got all the qualities that we need. You're ambitious and you're this and you're this and you're that. He said, no, we need somebody that comes in every day. And he had to let me go. I ran out of alcohol one day, and I got myself some rubbing alcohol and club soda, and I drank and I drank and drank until I got sick and I got wild. I tore the house apart, and I stood in front of the house, and I said to myself, what am I doing? There's no sense. And I ran in the bathroom and grabbed the razor and slipped my wrists. And as I bled in the middle of my living room, my oldest daughter came. She was only a little tot. Came running out, and she said to me, Daddy, are you hurt? And she ran next door, and she got the neighbor, and they saved my life. And every time I look today, I put on my watch, or I put on a shirt. I thank God that he left me here for something. 
I hope he left me here to talk to you tonight to say that you don't have to do these things. Things were starting to get bad. My wife and I were just splitting up back and forth, back and forth, and back and forth. I had three daughters at this time. And then I remember walking into my favorite gin mill. And the lady said to me, Stan, have your drink and please leave. Because we don't want your kind around here. You know, I didn't know what kind I was. I know what kind I was today. We are different from the other guy. We do things different than the other ones do. I no longer could drink with the guy that once stopped after the bar, after work, and had a couple of beers. Or I no longer could drink where I could take my wife out and have a few drinks and come home. It didn't work no more. So I left that bar, and I landed up on Mulberry Street in Newark, which is a barry of New, part of New Jersey. And I remember getting there, and they threw me off this Mulberry Street. You see, I didn't know the law of the land. I was a young man. They were all old. And I didn't know that if you had $2 in your pocket, you shared it with the other guy, whether you knew him or not. And if you had a bottle in your pocket and there were two drinks in it and he needed it badly, you shared it with him. You see, that sharing and that love one alcoholic has for another is there. And he brought me to the two main streets and they said, you go this way, you go that way, you don't come back here. And I landed up on a bar in New York on 3rd Avenue. And I was one of the youngest men there. And I did things there to survive. Anything to survive and drink. I stood on corners and I, and I unloaded trucks for $3 and a bottle of wine. I was always a strong boy. I stood on Orchard Street and I used to have their flea markets and I would take all the stuff out of their stores and bring it out and put it on the sidewalks then come back at night and bring it back for $3 a bottle of wine. I met a man on, on a barry, a man who was not an alcoholic, a man from Detroit who was a dentist, who was sick and tired of routine. And one day when his wife asked him if his socks and tie matched his suit, he threw his suitcase in the air and he was on a barry for seven years. He became my friend because every Friday we went up to the post office, opened up the box and there was a check. And he was my banker. And he loaned me money and I'd work it off and I'd give it back to him. And I kept clean. I was a pretty good boy on a barry. I kept clean. I never, I used to stop in an Atlas school of barbering. Man, they'd get a hold of me, and boy, they'd give me a haircut, they'd give me my nails, they'd give me a shave for 65 cents, man. I'd come out of there, pick up a shirt, a new shirt, and a new pair of slacks, and boy, I'm good for another 10,000 miles. And there came a point in August. I was very weak. I couldn't work any longer. And I went to this man, and it was so hot, and I said, please, give me a drink, Phil. Phil said, not this time. Stan, not this time. I've had it. I don't think you can pay me back if you long. So I ran down to 21st Street and sold a pint of blood. And I came back and I waved a $5 bill at him. You see, I don't need you now. I don't need your money, but two weeks later, two weeks later, I begged this man on my hands and knees. The love of God, I said, please, give me $5 or buy me a drink. And he said, Stan, not this time. And I walked. And I walked all the way to 8th Avenue. And I sold another pint of blood and I came back. And he got a hold of me in the old Roosevelt bar and he said to me, sit down, I'll buy you a drink. He said, I don't know what's wrong with you. He said, I know you like to have fun. He said, you get along with everybody. I know you have a wife and family. Please. I got $18 in my pocket. Now, I give you these $18 if you promise to go home and find your wife and your family. For $18, folks, I'd have stood on my head. I took those $18 and I got a ride from a trucker. The man bought me a meal, and he was so glad that I was going home. 
And I got to the point where I was to get off and I opened the door and I was ready to step out and I looked at the man and I said, where are you going? He said, makes no difference. You get out here. He said, I'm going to Philadelphia. I said, hell, I ain't been to Philadelphia in a long time. Got right back in his truck and landed up on Vine Street, the Bowery of Philadelphia. And it didn't take long for the $18 to run out. And I remember sitting in a park and another one just like me who was really sick came over and leaned on my shoulder. And he said, man, you as sick as I am? I said, I don't know. He said, you know, we need something. I said, yeah, I know we need something. He says, I can't get it, but you can. I said, what do you mean? He says, there's a place on 12th and Race. They'll sell, they'll take your blood just as long as you're standing and you're a new face and they'll take it. And he was right. Because I went over and I sold a pint of blood and they gave me six dollars and a shot of brandy. Never got six dollars. Always got five and never got a shot of brandy. But this time I wondered why, and it didn't take me long, for I walked off, and as I got into the middle of the street, I fell and I dropped. I no longer could go. And a big Irish cop, the map of Ireland on his face, dragged me and pulled me in an alley and said, you drunken bum, get off my beat. And I laid there, folks, I don't know today whether it was a day or three days or a week, but I remember when I opened my eyes, I couldn't see. And when I started to listen, I couldn't hear. And when I started to yell, nothing came out, and I was scared. And I prayed. I prayed to St. Joseph's, because in Polish school they told me, if you run into a situation as such, pray to St. Joseph for a happy death. And I remember making my amends, uh, my amends with my God and saying, why is this happening to me? Why is it happening to me and not the other fellas that went to school with me? Why isn't it happening to Joe and Mike and Charlie? This guy's a policeman. This guy's an accountant. Why am I doing here? And I remember adding, God, I wish I had another shot. And you know, I didn't hear these people. And I didn't see these people. But I smelt them. We alcoholics stink. Especially in a, a warm August to September day. And I smelt these people and I said to myself, Lord, thank you. Because if they stink as bad as I do, they have to be my friends. And that they were. That love one alcoholic has for another is found there and in these rooms today. These men never saw me. They carried me into shelter and fed me muscatel wine, their prized possession, and bread that they stole from bakeries in early morning hours. And after a ten-day period, I got up and I walked and I talked. And did I thank God for that? No. I ran to a hot shop. I ran to a hot shop to trade in my watch because I want to repay these men for helping me out. And I sat at the gin mill and we had a drink. I offered to buy him some food and they didn't want it. And I remember it was the last, I call it the last sane moment of my insane life. I did not want to be where that guy was at 56 and that guy was at 57. My mother's prayers must have been answered. I left that gin mill, I left the money and I walked out the street. And as I walked out the street, I tripped and I fell. And as my right hand went up in the air, you talk about miracles. Man thought I was hitchhiking. Came by and stopped in front of me in a little Volkswagen and said, Kid, where are you going? I said, I'm going to Jersey. And I said, God, I think so. <laughs> I, I, I think I'm going. He said, well, I'm going to Cranberry. Come on, I need a little company. And I hopped in a car and he brought me home. He brought me to my hometown of Sayreville when I was once an athlete, when I was a basketball star. Everybody knew the little Polish boy whose father was a shoemaker. 
Now the people are crossing the street to get away from me. Now they're talking about me rather than talking to me. But I heeded and I walked down and I said, my mother's waiting for me. She'll be glad to see me. She certainly was. She grabbed the broom and wailed the living daylights out of me. She beat me no end. She said, you drunken bum, get out of here. My mother was only 4'11", 82 pounds. All muscle. All muscle. She threw me out. Her oldest son. And you, if you're in a Polish family, you're the oldest son and your name is Stasia, there is nothing you can do wrong. My family was a little different. I got a brother, Eddie. He couldn't do nothing wrong. I only say that because he's here with me tonight. But anyway, I left and I went to a, st- to a stadium and I slept in a stadium. In McWilliams Stadium in Perth Amboy. And started to get cold. And I said, I think I'm going to have to go get mom. And see if she would let me back because I'm freezing. And I went back to mom and mom said to me, you know, Stanley, I read in a Polish magazine about a priest who found a society for drinkers. And I said, so what? Maybe you should go. I said, who, me? What for? I don't drink much. I'm only 28 years old. Mom, I'm waiting for my ship to come in. Mama says it done sunk. Don't wait. Forget it. She said, go find your wife and go find your family that I haven't seen for a long time. Had no idea where they were. And I went. And I found them in a dilapidated building. Plaster falling off the walls and them big long-legged jobs running all over the place. Three beautiful daughters because I chose to drink. I put them there. And they asked me to leave because they were getting support. And if they would have saw me, they probably would have stopped. And as I walked out the door and I took two steps out, my oldest daughter, the one that found me in a pool of blood, came to me and pulled out my trousers and she said, Daddy, did you forget that today is my birthday? I'll have you know, folks, from that day on, her and I have been celebrating together for 40 years. I came home and I asked my mom, where is this Society for Drinkers? And I looked up the telephone number, Bigelow 21515, I'll never forget it. And I picked up the phone and I called and Mom stood right there. She was there with the broom. She knew I was going to. The man answered the phone and he said to me, Kid, who are you calling for? So I'm calling for myself. He said, You are? I guess I kind of sounded young because you know at that time there were no young people. And then he said to me, he says, But you know, we're a little busy. So I said, Mom, they're a little busy. Mom went boom, boom, boom. A couple more times. She says, You wait till they get on busy. And I was glad I did. Because a man by the name of Tom Delaney, some of you might have heard of Jerry Delaney. Tom Delaney was intergroup chairman at that time. He spoke with me and I met with Tom. I went to Newark and I met him and he gave me a meeting book. And he said to me, go home. Someone will come to get you. And do me a favor, don't drink until you hear from another AA member. I swear I won't. And I went home and I kept my word. And I waited for someone to come. And it was surprising at that time, because some of you old-timers remember, when we got a call, we didn't wait till tomorrow. We didn't wait till the day after or an hour later. We went then. And we went then because when an alcoholic at that time called, that was his bottom. The bottoms were different. And that was the last time he would call, and probably the last call he'd make. And if you didn't get there, you might lose him in more ways than one. I found one that fell off the throne. He was on the throne. He had a ratty in his bathroom fell on top of the radiator. Never made it again. Another one, a good friend of mine, we knocked the door down to find a gun in his lap and a hole in his head. We got there too late. And many of those incidents, some of you all-timers remember. The pipe, the 
car and taken their lives because they didn't know which way to go. Because alcoholism was a disgrace and there was no help. And when we brought them to the hospitals, they would say, get that drunk and bum out of here. We got room for people that are sick. And we had nowhere to go. And you may remember, we put them in our basements, we put them on our porches, we put them anywhere we could just to help them get sober. This man said to me, wait, and someone will come, and nobody came. And I shook for five days in that little bedroom with my mom. And I shook, and she gave me everything from potato soup to pirogi, and it didn't work. I ate everything there was supposed to be a medication. I shook, and I was scared, and I was Saturday night, I was ready. And Mom said to me, I said, Mom, I'm going. i got to go. i got to get a drink. Larry Kransky's is right across the yard. I'm going over there. And she said, Stan, do me a favor. She said, I prayed to St. Anthony, who is the patron of lost things, that I sh- you should find yourself in life. Make this one more telephone call, and if you must, then go ahead and drink. And you know, you talk about miracles. Oh, you know, we didn't have an answering service where there was somebody there 24 hours a day. We didn't even have an answering machine. But I called at 10 after 9 that Saturday night, you know, because I felt the alcoholics would even be out somewhere. And at 10 after 9 that night, this man that talked to me the first time was changing fluorescent lights in the intergroup office. And he said, kid, how are you? He recognized my voice. I said, fine. He said, did you make any meetings? I said, no. He said, did you drink? I said, no. He said, how come you didn't make any meetings? I said, nobody came to get me. Oh, he said, who the heck took you by your hand and took you to the gin mill? And he started to yell at me. Yell at a newcomer today. Whoa, you hurt his feelings. You got to, whoo, his feelings are going to be hurt. Don't yell at him. My goodness. And he yelled at me. And he says, you know something else? He says, I thought you Polacks had some guts. He said, I think you're chicken to make a meeting. I said, who in the world do you call? But on went the phone. That was it, man. But the next night. The next night, I made my first meeting. Because my mother woke me at 7 o'clock in the morning. I don't know what possessed me to fall asleep. But I found, at 6, well, it was before 6 because we were going to 7 o'clock mass. And as we were walking to church together, I said, do you remember how to, how to pray? I said, sure. She says, do you remember how to confess? I says, why? She says, because you're going to confession. <laughs> you know? And I, and I confess in Polish. I always did. And I remember right here in Columbia, South Carolina... I want to go there because there's a little church there. I was there in the Marine Corps, and I decided to go to confession with a guy. And I figured, you know, down here, <laughs> there's no Polish, nothing, you know, I mean, Baptists all over the place, you know. But I found this little, I found this little church, and I went in with another man, and a guy was, the priest was sitting up front like this, you know, so he couldn't see you, you know. And the other guy, the fellow was with me, says, I'm getting out of here, you know. And he went, well, I was stuck, he saw me, you know. Well, I went up, and I said to him, I said, I want to confess. He said, fine. I said, but, Father, I can't confess in English. He says, have no fear. The Lord understands all languages. Well, I clean house. Man, I clean house. I, I went back to year one. And he said to me, are you done, young man? I said, yes, I am. He said, yes, you're from Bogoswabi in Polish. Who in God's name would expect a little Polish priest down here in Columbia, South Carolina? I got up and I'm a running away. And he said, whoa, fella, come back here. Get over here, he says. I'm going to give you your penance in English. Man, I, every, good, every first Friday of the month, I had to do it. I mean, I had to do it for almost a year. Boy, I went back to the barracks. I learned how to confess in English real quick. 
But I went to church that day, and that night I took a bus, and I went to a meeting that was on that list that Tom gave me. And I stood on a corner because I was two hours late. And a guy came by and says, you're looking for AA, son? What was that? I was two hours early. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> what I tell you? That's why I brought him. And I was two hours early, and the people were coming to make the coffee, and one man came by and said, you're looking for AA. I said, oh, no, I'm waiting for my sister. No, no, wait. And I remember Larry came by, and Larry says to me, you know, kid, the trolley don't stop here no more. He said, you might as well come on in. I saw all the people going this way. I knew the school. I played basketball there. I went around the back. I'm going to case it out. And I went in from the back, and I looked in. And I saw a room full of people, all dressed. It was a Sunday night. And at that time, folks, this is the way this man remembers we used to go to the meetings on Sunday. This was it. Not that it's wrong today, but that's the way it was. And I looked in there, and, man, the men looked good, and the women looked better. And I thought to myself, this must be a church meeting. And I was out that way. And a man came after me, and he said, Kid, come here. Are you looking for AA? I said, Yeah, I think so. Who sent you? And I told him. And he stuck out his hand. And he said, welcome. And he shook my hand, folks, like it's never been shook again. Didn't ask me who I was, where I came from, what I wanted, whether I was Polish, Irish. Welcome. Come on in and have a cup of coffee. I don't belong to this group, he said, but they do. Sit between those two guys. And I sat down and I looked this way and that way. This guy was 56, this guy was 61. And had Polish Einstein in the middle, 28. <laughs> And the old Dutchman that was 51 years old became poked me in the ribs and he said, shut up and listen. I said, okay, but I didn't say nothing yet. Yeah. <laughs> and the other guy said, you must be new. And I said, we, these guys are intelligent. <laughs> this ain't Weight Watchers, you know. You can't tell who's who. <laughs> and he said to me, since you, since you knew you don't have a sponsor. And I said, what's that? And he said, you got one. You think that was so bad in those days when we used to get sponsors that way? They met us at the door and they said, you got a sponsor? You say no. And I said, you got one now. Until something better comes along. We didn't have to beg people to sponsor us. People were willing to sponsor us and show us the way. And I remember the speaker got up and he says to me, sit and listen. Okay. Don't say nothing. And I sat and I listened. And a man got up from South, Virginia. He'd been in, he'd been in New Jersey for a long time, but he was still a boot this and a boot that, you know. Real long, right? Y'all, y'all, this, you know. I didn't understand him ten years later. I didn't know what he was talking about, but he told a story about a Polish boy. He was in an Irish town, so he had to tell a Polish story. He told a Polish story about the uh, little boy, uh, Polish boy got a brand new car. And he got all his friends and he took them for a ride. And as they were riding, the rain started. And then all of a sudden he hit the brake and the car turned over. And a policeman came. And he says, this your car? He said, no, sir. No, my car. He said, but I got him car. I got him car with wheels on the bottom. This one got wheels on top. <laughs> and you know, I laughed so hard. It was unbelievable. Everybody stopped laughing and I was laughing. And folks, I realized then, but for the first time in my life in a long time, I was able to express this energy in the form of laughter. And it was with you people. At an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting where I didn't even know anything about they said to me, where are you going? These two people became my big book. They became my sponsors. And the other fellow said, he's going to need help, so I'm the Irishman's going to help him. And they were off on attorney. And they told me to make meetings, and I made meetings as much as I can. They took me to meetings. But they didn't come to my door and say, so you shouldn't get wet, we'll pick you up at the door. 
You know, we don't want you to get yourself wet. We don't want you to get your shoes muddy. You know, we'll pick you up. Don't be on the corner. Corner's about seven miles from home, I found out later. I used to go there and I used to stand there and wait. Who's going to pick me up? Don't matter. What time are we going? That don't matter either. My mother used to say, what kind of outfit you get into? She says, you don't know where you're supposed to be. You don't know who's going to pick you up. You don't know what time. You don't know where you're going. You come home, you don't know where the hell you've been. And I didn't. I didn't know where I was going. But she said, keep going, keep going, keep going. And I kept going. My sponsor was a big book man. And every time I would ask a question, I was afraid to ask him questions. I ran into the chapter where the agnostic and the the atheist. And I said, what is that? He said, you really want to know? He said, yeah. I said, what's the difference? He says, well, an atheist is a guy that goes to the Notre Dame and SMU game and don't know who the hell to root for. That'll take a while. That'll take a while. And the agnostic is a guy that when he dies, he's all dressed up in a suit and he got nowhere to go. <laughs> then he'd add, look it up on page so-and-so, you know, and read it. I'll never forget the day. I'm being a young man, 28. I had a pretty sharp eye for the ladies. And I kept looking every once in a while, especially the other sponsor, the Irishman. He said, hey, stop looking. I said, you're 70, you don't look. I look, I'm 28, you know. I said to my sponsor one day, I said, Phil, where is there anything about sex? And Phil says, don't don't talk about that to me. Oh, what do you mean? Is it in a book? He said, yeah, it's in a book, but don't worry about it. What do you mean, don't worry about it? And in his haste, he said to me, he says, I pay 96. Well, you all know that sex is on page 69, right? That's the truth. It is. It's on page 69. But I opened up the 96. Don't be discouraged if your prospect does not respond at once. (laughs) Ain't that terrific? Search out another alcoholic and try again. (laughs) Are you sure you do find someone desperate enough to accept your eat with eagerness what you have to offer? And we find it a waste of time to keep chasing a man or woman who cannot or will not work with you. And if you leave such a person alone, he may soon become convinced that he cannot recover by himself. <laughs> to spend, <laughs> spend so much time on any one situation is to deny some other alcoholic an opportunity to live and be happy. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I call this man up. <laughs> and to the day he died, he never forgot it. He was my first sponsor, and he was my best sponsor. And over the years, whatever he said to me keeps coming back. I wore out four sponsors now. They all disappeared, you know, up to the band upstairs, to the big meeting up there. And after I lost my third sponsor, I went to Phil's uncle, and I said, Phil, I, uh, Phil uh, Vince, I need a sponsor. And Vince says to me, he says, what happened to the other ones? What do you need a sponsor for? I said, everybody needs a sponsor. Vince, you say that yourself. And he says to me, he says, well, he said, I don't know. I said, why? He said, what happened to the other ones? I said, they died. He said, you ain't got too good a record, have you? (laughs) But he accepted me and he became my sponsor. I got involved. Uh, I didn't get involved immediately in the steps. I didn't get involved immediately. 
but I did get involved with speaking. At seven weeks of sobriety, my sponsor said to me, would you like to speak? And I said, whoa, is the Pope Catholic? You know. <laughs> and I said, of course I will. Find me a group to suit me, and I'll be glad to carry the message. <laughs> and he said to me, what kind of group would you like? I said, get me a group with a lot of painters and masons and carpenters, and I'll be glad to go. That Thursday night, they took me to a place called Upper Montclair. Some of you Jerseyans remember. There ain't a painter in Upper Montclair. That's the place that if you lose your license for two years, your chauffeur drives you around, you know? One of them kind of places. And I walked up the door to that first meeting. And I saw a woman standing there, and she had a gown on. She was serving coffee. And I went up, and she handed me a cup. Not a paper job, one of these cheap jobs. I mean China. And I looked, in it, and it had a saucer underneath. And hey, it matched, same set. And I said, you want me to talk here? He said, yep. I ran out the door. And Phil, Phil was a cripple, and he had a cane, and he caught me. And he brought me back, and he said, wasn't it Tuesday that you said within reason you would do anything for AA? I said, yeah. And I got up and I spoke and I said, my name is Stan, I'm an alcoholic. And I didn't mean a word of it. Because at seven weeks, I really didn't know what an alcoholic was. I knew there was something wrong. I didn't know, didn't know that there was a mental obsession and a physical compulsion. I didn't know that I had this disease. But I knew that when I looked at you and you smiled, I saw something. And when you walked that strut with the confidence that you all have, I wanted that. And if this is what it's going to take you, I'm going to talk. Man, I talked for 40 minutes. They ain't shut me up since. And I encourage people to speak. I know you don't have a lot of speaker meetings. We do. We're a speaker group. I encourage everyone in my group. We all speak. We fight for commitments. You know, it's so nice to hear somebody say how it was, how I came in, and how it is today. I know the, the discussion meetings, you get bits and pieces, but to hear the whole story, it's great. And I encourage people. And people come to me and they say, oh, Stan, when I get up there, I'm full of nerves, I'm shaking. I said, man, that ain't nerves. That's God shaking the truth out of you. <laughs> and others say, I get mixed up. I'm in the middle. I'm at the end. Who knows? You don't know. I may be at the beginning. And then you women. There's so many women. You come to me when I encourage you. You say, I can't. I got such a boring story. You know how many women sitting out there with a boring story they want to hear? Huh? And you know, it seems like you all drank the same way. Got up in the morning, put on my house coat with the cigarette burns on it. Huh? Yeah. Pulled down the blinds and I drank. Come on, ladies. I drank with some of you. There was a lot more action than that. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So come share with us. You'll feel better. After 19 months of sobriety, my sponsor said to me, we're going to get some work done now. I said, going to do what? What have we been doing for 19 months? Frantic sobriety, he called it. We wanted to keep you busy so you couldn't drink. He says, now we're going to work the steps. And I said, my God, we've been running around all this time. What do you mean? I knew of the steps. I knew about them. 
And he told me that we would get into him when I was ready. It seemed that I was ready. And I was a little scared. And he told me a little story. You've heard it before probably from me. About the man who and his grandson were sitting in a kitchen. And a grandfather was reading the newspaper. And a grandson would bother him. Grandpa this, grandpa that. And he'd send the little boy out and he'd say, count the peaches on a tree or the pickets on a fence. And the little boy would come back and say, my gosh. He says, you're already finished? I said, yeah. And as he turned the page of the paper, he found a man, a a map of the world. And he took this map of the world, he tore it into a thousand pieces. And he gave it to the little boy and he said, here, go in the kitchen and put it all together. That'll keep you. Five minutes later, the little boy is back. Little bitty thing, he says, Grandpa, come on and look. I put the thing together. Grandfather walked in there, he says, unbelievable. He says, you must be a genius. He said, no, Grandpa. He said, how did you do this? He said, Grandpa, it was easy. For on the other side of the map of the world was a man. I put the man together and the whole world fell right into place. You see, I was the problem with the problem. I had to put my life together. My wife wasn't the problem. My boss wasn't. I was the problem. I was the picker-upper. I picked up the drink. And we went into the steps. And I learned that the first step is the only step that I had to take 100%. But I must take it. Or I'm not going to go anywhere. Don't be afraid of must. Because if you look in a big book, start counting. And you're going to find a few. You must take that first step. The first step says you must stop drinking or you're not going anywhere. The second step tells you that you're insane. You're a nut. You're not well. You think I'm going to tell somebody I'm not well if I don't give myself up to being the fact that I'm an alcoholic? No, i got an excuse now. I'm an alcoholic, so I could be a little wheelie, you know. Maybe I am. Then the third step my sponsor made is very simple. Don't look for a bolt of lightning, young man. It ain't going to happen. But he did tell me, he says, what do you think? God's will is for you. Your will as an alcoholic is to drink. God's will for you, evidently, he put you into AA, is to stay sober. It's that simple. Whatever happens in between, don't worry about it. Because it's going to happen anyway. Why worry about it? Your will is to drink. His will is for you to stay sober. Act accordingly. It's that simple. I got involved in service. I went into G- G- as a GSR, DCM. Did a lot of work in New Jersey on the districts. Became, your, became the delegate of the area. And things were really going great. Things were really going great. I got active because I wanted to get active. I wanted to know what Alcoholics Anonymous was all about. My sponsor's words ring in my ears every day. Words like gratitude. I remember him saying, gratitude is not a word. Gratitude is an action. Don't tell me you're grateful. Show me. A man in, New, New, in San Diego said, Tell me and I'll forget. But show me and I'll remember. And that's the way it was. I continued this way for many, many years. I 12-step people. I was very lucky with people that I 12-step. About a month ago when Bernice here celebrated her 25 years, One of my people, one of my people that I had sponsored, I gave him a little token for his 25 years. And that was the 25th member of Alcoholics Anonymous that I gave a token to for 25 years. 
I also was fortunate enough to give one member a 30-year token, a man who spoiled my Super Bowl day when the Jets beat Baltimore. I went 12-stepped him that day. I'll never forget it. But he's sober today. And what a thrill. You know, we don't have the sponsorship that we had today. It's missing on the edges. You know, the, 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 the rehabs took a little bit away from us. But you know something? The rehabs are closing, folks. The rehabs are coming down and it's going to come back to you and I. And you and I are going to get a call and we're going to have to get out of our warm beds possibly and go and look at this person and say, we can help you. And what a thrill for those of you that experienced it. To see this piece of nothing sitting there and the wife saying, uh, another guy's going to get him sober. Yeah, I know. This is about the 16th. But you come and you take this guy. And sometimes you wash his face and his hands. Sometimes you go home and get a shirt. And you bring him to the meeting and you sit him down and he shakes and you shake alongside of him. And he stinks and you don't care. And he gets better. And after 90 days, you're going to give him a little token for staying sober. And you say to the wife, would you like to come? Well, I don't know. But as you give him that tin, that little token, way back in the room, you see a face that's familiar. And a year goes by and the next thing you know, now you're giving him a year token. Now it's a little different. Mama's up front. And the two kids are with her. And a life is born all over again. A joy is there. And you had something to do with it. What a wonderful feeling. I joined a group, and I became a member of a group. Not a joiner, because we have a lot of joiners. We have joiners all over the place. We need members that'll help and work. I always say a good member is, you can notice a new member if he knows where the key is. To open up the door in case the coffee maker don't show up. How many of you know where the key is? Uh-huh. A lot of members up front here know where it's at. Every group member knows. Become a member. This is my group, the Cerebral Victories Group. This is where I go with my problems. This is where I go with my joys. My sponsor told me every single Thursday at that time, I should be able to go to Cerebral and find you there. And make it the best group in the world. The man said it here, and I've said it many times. I belong to the best group in the world. And that's the best group for me. And if it's not for you, don't get a coffee pot and an angry friend and start a new group. Stay there and make that one better. Because you're only going to take yourself there and start something that's going to be more trouble. <laughs> and keep that door open. Keep the door open for that new man to come, regardless of when he comes. Our group, since that handshake that I got, there's two people at the door. And I remember a story about a guy in, in Las Vegas. A man was standing at the... <laughs> was wanted to go to the bathroom. And he's shaking and he's wiggling and he's going to the door and he got no money. And a guy come by to him, a well-dressed man, says, what's the matter, sir? He says, oh, well, he says, I have to go to the bathroom. He said, go ahead. He says, I don't have uh, any money, and it, every, every door has a slot. So the man deeped in his pocket, and he gave him a nickel. And a man went over to the nickel, and as he was putting the nickel in, guess what? The door opened up. And he went in and did his business. And he went in, and he started to play the machines. Next you know, he's got $3,000. Stayed overnight and got $30,000. Went back home and saw a sponsor. Sponsor says, give me that 30 grand. I'm going to invest it in two years, three years. He's got $300,000. He becomes a circus speaker. He's speaking all over the States. And he's speaking in Los Angeles one day, outside of Las Vegas. And he's telling the story. The guy in the back of the room yells out. He said, hey. He said, I'm the guy that gave you the dime. He said, I'm not looking for you, Charlie. I'm looking for the man that left the door open. 
let us be responsible to keep that door open. I've had a lot of great things happen to me in AA. And one of the greatest, I think, was just two months ago. The Polish people of Poland asked me to come and speak at their 25 years of, of, of Alcoholics Anonymous. These are the people that explained to me that in the early 70s when the communists were there, their meetings were held under guard. The police stayed across, sat across the street and wrote down who came. And then after the meeting, they came with bottles of vodka. If you wanted to drink, you were welcome because they wanted to break it all up. They asked me to come and the experience in Poland it only happened to me once. I stood at the countdown and the oldest person in the room, a room in the stadium of 6,000 people, was 22 years old. And after 22, I stood and I shook and they watched. And when I sat down after 39 years, three weeks and six days, <laughs> they wondered what happened. And I didn't know what to do. They called me on stage. They asked me for some words of wisdom. They asked me if I still make a many meetings after all these years. I said, of course I do. He said, how many meetings do you make? I said, eight or nine. He said, you need nine meetings after all your sobriety? I said, no. I don't need nine meetings. I only need two. Well, why do you go to nine? Because I don't know what two I need. <laughs> they loved it. I went to a meeting. The next day they had it written on a table at the AA meeting. Don't forget the two meetings. They put me on television. They put me on radio. They sat me down and asked me questions. How do you do it in America? Folks, it wasn't the sobriety that made the difference. But there I was, one of them. My mom and dad were born not too far from there. I spoke in their language. And they understood. And like the rock star of Poland, the number one rock star wrote a poem, wrote a song for me when I was there. And the last line... The last line he sang from the podium was that if our American pole can do it, why can't we? You see, there was some hope. I was able to bring hope and joy that they can do it. Language barriers or not. We've got nine Polish groups in the state of New Jersey now. We have a retreat. But that was probably, probably the greatest moment of my life. When I was at the conference, when Dr. Maxwell was being retired from the board... I was chairman of the delegates, and I sat there after I made my speech, and I wrote a little ditty that I thought helped me, and maybe it'll help you. And it goes something like this. There is a useful and important task that won't get done unless you do it. There is a face upon which a smile will never appear unless you help put it there. There are breaking hearts that will not have the courage to try again unless you walk with them. For God has provided no substitute for you. You are an